Day one, when he created light and time, but yet he didn't create the sun, moon, or stars till like the fourth day. So God has a supernatural ability to create order in your chaos, light in your darkness, and detail in your void. And so today we want to continue that study and we're going to move into chapter 3 of the book of Genesis where we got this event that happens called the fall. And every one of you should have received one of these apples because we realize that it's important for you to put something visual with something that is spoken so you can remember it. And so you're going to remember this sermon about the fall because I'm going to be truthful. It wasn't an apple in the garden, but everybody associates it with an apple. So you got one. Now, what you're going to do is eventually you're going to submit to temptation and it's going to look like that. Because you may take a bite even during the sermon. But I wanted you to have something in your hands so we could remember. So I'm going to preach the entirety of the uh, chapter 3 and just speak certain verses. So to save time and not read the entire chapter, will you bow your heads and let's pray. Father, again, I ask you for the anointing of the Holy Spirit that makes preaching powerful, that allows people's lives to be changed with the authority of the gospel. Father, I ask you today to do what only you can do, and I'll give you the praise and the honor and the glory in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. When we left last week, we were talking about a garden situation where God had finally created the apex of His creation, man. And that we were going to see this creation, man, have dominion, representative authority. God said for him to take his authority into the earth and have representative authority and take dominion over everything that he had created. And today, I want you to understand that God created everything out of nothing but yet he did it with a purpose and a plan in mind that was going to redeem us all. And I'm going to try to answer a couple of age-old questions and Carmine is going to help me preach in just a little bit so I could divide this thing up and I could really give you the one-two. I could throw one and then he could throw one. But here we go. Genesis chapter 3 created, uh, talks about God creating a perfect environment where mankind had a task to keep and to tend the garden. Man walks with God in the closest of fellowship during the evening times of the garden. God and man have fellowship shoulder to shoulder, eye to eye, face to face. A perfect environment and perfect fellowship with God. Man has been created differently than all other creation. He has been created as the image bearer of God and that we are created in God's likeness and in His image. And then God deposited something in us that He made no other deposit in any other part of creation and He did it in you and me. It's called self-will. Now it makes our love something that is determined by our own heart and our own thought process. That for us to really have true communication and true love between man and God, we got to choose to love Him. We have will. He didn't make us love Him. 
He wanted to woo us. He wanted, to be, we, he wanted us to be awed by His presence and fall. our nature is to fall madly in love with God. So many people are walking a walk of faith simply because they are fearful of hell. And I'm here to tell you, that is the most miserable way to try to get there. If you will fall in love with Him instead of being afraid of Him, you will find Him to be a companion and closest of fellowship that you will allow God to reveal His purposes in you. Can somebody say amen? Well, here's one of the questions I always get when it comes to this subject. Why did God create the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Couldn't God have avoided the fall if He just wouldn't have created it? The problem is, is that for you to be aware of self-will, you have to have a choice. You have to have a choice between right and wrong. And you realize that the, the, the uh, chapter 3 of the book of Genesis says that God created everything in the earth and gave you access to everything except one tree. That means you could swim in any river. You could, you could wade out into any ocean. You could eat of any tree except one tree. It is the determination. So you say, well, Pastor, God could have solved this if He just wouldn't have created the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What He wanted you to understand is that to measure things like submission, you've got to be in disagreement. See, that's why it's so fun as a pastor sometimes to see the look on people's faces when they get married. Because you, during their vows, they are, they are acknowledging the promise to submit to one another. They're agreeing to get married. There's no room to measure submission at this point. But let them be married for about a week. And you'll find out that there's some things they're going to disagree upon. And that's where submission has to be measured. Same thing with self-will. God gives us one rule. Listen to it in Genesis chapter 2 verse 9. It says, Out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. For the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil also. All of a sudden now in the midst of this garden that God has created, there's two trees right in the middle. And my dad some probably 35 or 40 years ago once preached a great message called Reaching Past the Best to Get to the worst because do you realize that the tree of life do you when, when when the fall finally happens and God sends a seraphim he doesn't guard the tree of the knowledge of evil good and evil he guards the the tree of the of life because he didn't want to perpetuate man's sinful state for eternity and so right now they have perfect access to the tree of life but yet don't don't respond to that isn't it in your nature and in my nature, whatever rule, there's only one in all the earth. You don't have to do anything else, just don't eat that tree. And it starts to get in their nature to look at the one thing that they can't have. And it makes them vulnerable to temptation. Do you think that they didn't see the tree? All of a sudden, here they are. Here's two trees in the garden. God said, you can eat of the tree of life anytime you want to. But they didn't choose to want to eat of that. They're going to be tempted with the one that, that God told them 
not to eat of. See, to measure free will, you have to have a choice, a choice that God forbids man access to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you have to realize this is a command from God. Genesis 2, 16 and 17, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it you shall surely die. We have access to everything. We can choose to be obedient. We can choose to be disobedient. We now have choice. Enter the garden. All of a sudden a visitor. A visitor starts coming in the garden in the form of a serpent. We know it's the devil. We know that he is going to come. Most of us know the big picture of what's fixing to happen. But if you pay attention to the details, you'll find out how he woos them. Now, we have a visitor to the garden, the serpent, and the tempter Satan had to come into the garden taking the image of a serpent to begin to talk to Adam and Eve. And exactly what did God say about the one tree you're not supposed to eat of? All of a sudden, this invader, this visitor, this tempter starts to ask them one single question. What is it about that rule that God gave you? Do you remember exactly what he said? Because what he's trying to do is to make you believe, make them believe that God is trying to keep them from something that they need. Can you imagine the chaos that has come into the world by this thing called sin? God was not trying to keep them from something that they needed. He was trying to prevent them from the tragedy and the chaos created by the law of sin and death. And God, being a loving God, was trying to avoid the moments, even though He knew before creation they were going to fall. He was trying to avoid the moment and have them choose the best. But they started listening to the voice of a serpent. What did God say? Isn't that what the same temptation today is what did God really say in this book? What is it that... Do you think He means this? Do you really believe He was literal when He gave you some of the things that He told you not to participate in? What is it? This book is out of date. This book is antiquated. It's not for today's life. Isn't it sounding very similar to the very first temptation? And He comes to her. He attacks the divine nature of God. He transfers God's qualities to a fruit to deceive Eve by. You say, what do you mean transferred? Listen to the temptation. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall eat of each tree, eat, not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, before we even read any further, do you realize what has just happened? God didn't say that. Eve said it. God said for them not to eat it. And all of a sudden she is falling prey to the tempter by adding something to. See, God just told them not to eat it. She said God said not to eat it or touch it. She's starting to add to. So once you start adding to some things... All of a sudden, you're starting to measure God by not the authority of His words, but the authority of your words. Because all of a sudden, right now, see, if she, if she is confusing what God really said with what she said, all she has to do is touch it and she dies. But in just a minute, she's going to have it in her hand and she's still going to be alive. 
See, that's what's confusing. When you start believing what other people are telling you about God, that is why it's so vitally important for you to have a personal relationship with God on your own because God forbid that someone ever tell you something that they've added a little bit to because of their own personal temptations or their own personal life. It's hard for me to preach sometimes because I really would like to make my shortcomings doctrine. I'd really like to make everybody go by the rules I have to go by. It'd make it a whole lot easier. But some of you have freedoms that I can't experience because God knows my weak areas. And so she starts to add to him, for God knows that when you... The serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was a desire to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. And, and she gave also to her husband who was with her. All ladies in the house say, who was with her? And he ate. And then the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. See, he convinced her that God was keeping her from something good. And that something that was pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. Why wouldn't God want you to be the smartest you can be? Why, wouldn't God, why would God want to keep something so beautiful away from you? Because he knew underneath the surface of the beauty was tragedy. He's starting to question God's character in front of them. And his voice starts to become more, have more volume and more authority than the voice of God. All of a sudden, God is saying, this will kill you. He's saying, no, it won't. You ever desired to do something and all you're waiting is for somebody to agree it's okay? Because what you're looking for is if the chips come down, somebody to blame. God, I know you told me something, but they told me it was okay, so I did it, and I found out you were actually right, and they were wrong, so please don't punish me. Tell, punish the one that told me it was okay. Well, wait a minute. Who has the loudest voice in your life? Does culture, does television, does media, who has the loudest voice in your life? Because culture will tell you this book is antiquated. But God's authority through his word will tell you, no, it's not. I'm here for you to give you something that is going to put boundaries in your life so you don't go kill yourself. Amen. And he shifted her gaze from God to a fruit. The Bible is very clear. The one of the things that were a part of the temptation was how it looked. Can you imagine? I'm going to just give you a couple of statistics. We are obsessed with beauty. Now, ladies, I'm going to have to come down hard on you because I'm going to preach in just a minute to the men. If you would have stood up, if Adam would have stood up and been a husband and said, wait a minute, you're talking to the wrong one. God told me the rule first and I had to tell her. So if you want to actually what he said, talk to me about it and moved her out of the way of temptation and stood in a position of protection, we wouldn't have got here. Amen. But when you want something too, you'll let anybody try it. Let's see if it kills her. I got another rib. <laughs> That's good preaching. I don't care who you are. We are obsessed with beauty. Ladies, not talking about surgical augmentation, only talking about what you put on your eyes and your lips and your cheeks. $64.5 billion alone spent in the United States of America on cosmetics. Not preaching against them. 
I wish they would invent something that would grow hair. I would, inv I would invest in that. So I'm not saying you shouldn't have your eye shadow. I'm here to tell you, when you start looking in the mirror to find your definition of beauty, you will find yourself failing because every single day you are going to get one day older and need a little bit more help that comes in a packet. I knew I had the ladies there. But he promised them a better life. If you'll just take of it, you'll have a better life. You'll be like God. Your eyes will be open. They were already like God. They were created in his likeness and his image. They were created eternal without the capacity to die. All of a sudden, she was looking for beauty in the wrong place. And the book of Psalms says this. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. See, God could have provided in the cool of the garden all the beauty she needed to be identified as beautiful. But she started to put the qualities of what she was receiving from God in a walk with something that she couldn't have on a tree. Then it said that it was, it was also something that could bring pleasure. It was desirable. That word there can be interpreted pleasure. And compare, you want to see how committed we are to pleasure in our modern day culture? Listen to this. Think about the salaries of professional musicians and professional athletes. Millions upon millions of dollars. And then think about what we pay a police officer, a firefighter, and a nurse. You'll see how we value pleasure. The one doing CPR on you should be the millionaire. And the one throwing the ball should probably earn about $35,000 a year. Amen. That's good preaching too. Then the pursuit of prideful wisdom. The Bible says that it not only was desirable to the eyes and it was something that was beautiful to look upon to be desirable for pleasure, but it was also to gain one's wisdom. What they didn't understand is that they were walking at the feet of God that could have given them unlimited, vast wisdom of the ages. And they chose to try to get wise through a fruit. Temptation. They both fell prey and rebelled against God. The only restriction given. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit and ate it, and she also gave to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together. See, sin and death immediately started to take effect. And for the first time, man began to age and die. And guilt associated with the transgression of sin and rebellion come to the surface and immediately mankind tried to hide what they had done with leaves. For the first time, God had created everything up until this point. And as Carmine gets ready to come, I want to leave you with this. For the first time in all creation, mankind creates something fear. For the first time, man's afraid of God. And they start to try to fix what only he can fix with leaves. See, your sin shouldn't be, you shouldn't go through the energy of trying to cover it up. And Carmine's going to come and talk to you about what it means to hide from an almighty God. Am I on?
I'm going to take that, uh, that word as nurses should make millions of dollars as a prophecy. <laughs> we'll take that and, and leave that there. Um, uh, always an honor to come and speak before you guys, family. Um, I want to I pose a question of where Pastor left off. And the question I want to pose that I believe God posed um, to me and asked me recently was, what are you hiding from? What is that one thing in our lives that we spend every ounce of energy on trying to hide and pretend it doesn't exist? What's that one particular deep issue that God has been trying to find in in that area deep in your heart and that we've been hiding from? It's funny that God would ask a question to Adam, where are you? It's funny that the question that we're hiding would even be asked because in reality, God sees all and God knows all. So what is that thing? Is it our insecurities? Is it our our loss of identity? Is it our questioning faith? How about just sin, fear, fear of failure? I can call out many of these things to add to the list, but what is that thing? The crazy thing about our society today, we live in a society that is the most connected that we've ever been. Facebook, Instagram, um, call it out, whatever it is. Yet, we are the most edited, cropped, and disconnected generation ever to be. Hiding behind posts of likes and uh, Instagram photos, when in reality there's issues deep in our heart that we're really hiding from. So what is that thing? I want to try to get there by going through a little bit of Genesis 3 and leave off, uh, go where uh, Pastor left off. So if we could turn our Bibles to Genesis 3, 6 through 12, we're going to read a little bit further. And it says this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? And then the man said, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the tree and I ate. Let's pray. Father, I just ask as we continue this journey, Lord, that you would just continue to soften our hearts. Lord, let us receive of your word today and receive of you today. And God, speak, open our ears and our eyes to hear you and to see you more clearly. God, I thank you for your graciousness and I thank you for your mercy. And I pray that we would have a revelation of that today. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, let me ask the question one more time. What are you hiding from? Is it our sin? How about our identity and who God has called us to be? Do we hide from our purpose? Or do we just simply hide Jesus from the world? I think that we can look through Scripture and find many examples of these issues. 
But for the purpose of today, I want to focus our, our attention on just our identity and our sin. See, what is not identity? If I were to pose that question to you and I were to ask, who are you? I'm sure some of you would say, uh, I'm a firefighter, I'm a nurse, I'm a father, I'm a mother, my name is Jack, my name is uh, Gray. You, you would answer in that way. But to the core of your being, if, every, if that was all to be stripped away from you, what would remain? What is at the core of your being? You see, God, his, ident- or his identity in us is that we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. That he's created us in his image and in his likeness. And our, and our identity is found in that. Not in our gifts and our abilities, but who he is. You see, God created us for his glory and to be an example of his glory on the earth today. Now, I need to teach for just a minute here. You see, Romans 3.23, it says this. It teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what this is saying essentially is that they have all sinned and lack the glory of God. Not this glorious state or this high place, but the actual presence in the glory of God. John Piper actually teaches it this way. He says that the scripture actually relates to Romans 1.23, where it says this, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God for images of mortal men. Mortal men like we see in the mirror sometimes. Mortal men like me and you daily when we're doing our hair or doing our makeup, look in that mirror and see ourselves. You see, so Romans 3.23 is explained by 1.23, and the explanation is this. Catch this. That we were made in the glory of God to reflect the glory of God, to carry the glory of God. Yet essentially, what we've said sometimes is that I, I like what I see in the mirror better. Right? Isn't that the root of it? Isn't that the root of sin? Isn't that the root of Genesis 3? That Adam and Eve chose a way of their own, right? That God gave them this path and they chose this other way. You see, Adam and Eve were created to enjoy each other, to be fruitful, to carry his glory to the earth. Yet we know the story, which we've already read. The crazy thing is that God had created them to be in his image, yet we see Satan tempt them in the very thing that they already had. The very thing they already had was their temptation. You see, that's how Satan works, isn't it? Isn't it? By half-truths, right? Right? Satan began by twisting this word of God. Did God actually say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Notice how Satan tries to make God look stingy and evil almost in this way. He says, Satan is saying, did God really create all those trees and tell you not to eat of any of them? When Eve corrects Satan, Satan doesn't give up. He tries another way. This time, he directly denies the consequences of eating the tree and accuses God of not wanting his human creation to become like him and to have the knowledge of good and evil. 
Interesting. You see, Satan wor Satan's words were partially true, right? Satan's words were partially true. In 3.22, God admitted that man had become like one of us in knowing good and evil. And of course, the problem was not how they obtained this knowledge. By sh it, it's, it, that was the problem. It wasn't about um, what they did. It's about how they got there. See, understand that by shortcutting God's method of giving them knowledge and taking Satan's method instead. You, you understand that? It wasn't a matter of them um, not um, following what God was saying because it was already said to them. You see, and this is, the, this is Satan's half-truth to man. You see, thus, Satan uses half-truths as a mean of deception. You see, in essence, I believe that, that when Adam hid his ashamed and naked, he was not only hiding from his sin, but he was hiding from his identity. He forgot who he was. You see, when God created this, these animal skins, when God created uh, this method, when pastor said that they came and they hid themselves with these fig leaves, God came with a different method, right? With animal skins, and he clothed them with that. There are a lot of theological and, and prophetic principles that this relates to. You know, this was a foreshadowing of sacrifice and Adam being clothed in what God was made like in his righteousness, but also simply, I believe it means this, that Adam and Eve tried to hide their sin by their own means and use leaves, but I believe God used the animal skins for another reason, to remind Adam. Because previously, Adam was the one that was naming what? All the animals. Can you imagine being in a place in a position like that where you are so close and connected to something um, and then all of a sudden you fall, you're, you're, you're just in a mess and God brings you back to that place to remind you who you are and what you did. And I believe that that's what, what God did when he clothed Adam in those animal skins. You see, hey, you named those things. Remember who you are. You know, Colossians 3.3 says this. It says, your life is now hidden with Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. But instead of us seeing our identity hidden with him, sometimes it's just easy for, for us to hide from it. Sometimes it's easy for us just to hide from our identity. Secondly, I want to quickly go here, because I think this is the root of the passage in which Adam... Um, was hiding from God because I, I believe he was, he, I mean, he was hiding from his sin and his disobedience. You know, this is actually quite simple yet, gosh, as humans, we make this so hard sometimes. We do, we do. God just uh, gives us the answers and yet we try to find our, our own way and our other direction and our means to this way and that way. But it's actually quite simple. Why do we hide because he already sees it, right? He already sees it. He already knows it. He already knew what we were going to do. He already knows where we are. But is the question that we sometimes worry about man's opinion more than God's opinion? Do we have a false sense of idea sometimes of this, this being that is so far away that it's easy to hide 
from, it's easy to say those things to him, yet when we come before our brothers and sisters and our wives and our family, that these things that have tormented us or, or held us back from our purpose for so long, we just can't let them go. We hide from them. Will it cost us something? It could cost us everything sometimes. You see, Isaiah 29, 15 says this. It says, Woe to those who grow to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, Who sees us? Who'll know? Proverbs 28, 13 says this, Whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. You see, ultimately, ultimately this is it. Sin keeps us from our purpose because eventually... We become a slave to that very thing, right? Scripture says it, but practically, come on. I know I'm not the only one standing before you today that has dealt with issues in my life that when that sin uh, just begins to grow a little bit of root and we allow that thing to continue to happen, this little sin just becomes this, this, uh, this bigger thing and we're allowing our minds to, to trick ourselves like, oh, it's okay, it's not there, and we just hide it deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper down. And I'm not just talking about sin, so hear me, I don't want to come off that way. I'm talking about us dealing with loneliness. Come on. I'm a nurse. I see it so much. You know, this issue of hiding is not a, uh, uh, it doesn't have any age difference or um, it doesn't uh, pick a female or a male. It happens to young and old. I sit at bedsides of dying men and women and hear them confess these things to me. I've been hiding this my whole life. I just need to get it off my chest before their last dying breath. I've been lonely my whole life. It's not a sin issue. But this loneliness has kept me from who God has called me to be. This addiction has kept me from God, from what God has called me to be. And we go great depths to hide those things and try to just walk and walk and walk. But God is saying, just be free from that. There's a freedom. There's a freedom in it. Sin becomes easier because we make room for it. It produces slavery, and then it destroys our ideas, our will, and ultimately, the Bible tells us that it produces death. It was said to Adam and Eve, this wasn't a physical death. It said that you will surely die, and eventually they died. So, so where do we go from here? I think Genesis is an interesting book. I, lo I love it in that this. We see God do a lot of things first in this book. We see God's first creation in this book. We see the first time God talks to man. We see the first time that God deals with sin. So I think we can learn a lot from this. You see, when mankind first rebelled and did exactly the opposite of God, we see how God reacted, right? He didn't snap his fingers and just start over, like Pastor was saying earlier. He could have, but he didn't. He could have came down like that judgmental father, that condemning father, and said, why did you do that? But he didn't. They eat the fruit, 
they run and hid. And it says that God pursues them. Catch that. The Bible says that God pursues them. He walks after them. God, you're so good. He walks through the garden pursuing and looking for them. And he asks a question. He asks a question. Again, weird. Why would God need to ask a question? Doesn't God know everything already? Why why is he asking this question? Where are you, Adam? He knew where he was at. So why ask? Was the question for God or was the question for Adam? See, I believe this was a rhetorical question just for Adam. And in the midst of that question, when he says, hey, Adam, where are you? Adam heard that loving voice of his father calling out to him. That grace and that mercy saying, where are you, Adam? Where are you? Where do we go? How did he get out of that? What, when God asks us that question, where are you? What does it take? What's the practical point of this? I believe that's something called redemptive vulnerability. Redemptive vulnerability. Listen to this. Redemptive, redemptive vulnerability is a vulnerability that leads to life. It's where we share our brokenness in order to display the surpassing power and sufficiency of Christ and the gospel, which transforms us increasingly into the likeness of Christ. Being vulnerable is not an end in itself. Rather, our vulnerability should point us individually and together with other believers to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Our sufficiency is in Him. It looks and it hopes in the redemptive work of who Jesus Christ is and His work on the cross. This kind of vulnerability does not put a spotlight on our brokenness or sin. See, we, we, we struggle to be vulnerable with God and to with others because we fear of the, the ramifications of that. But redemptive vulnerability points to his redemption in our lives. It points to what he's done already on the cross. It points to him and his sufficiency. This is the kind of vulnerability that magnifies and points to how good of a God he is. How sufficient and how kind he is. How persistent and how gracious our God is. You see, it's His grace that makes us aware of our need for Him. Hear that. It's His grace that makes us understand and be aware of our need for Him. It's His grace that causes us to cry out in dependence, to turn away from sin, and to remind us of His love. 
and we embrace our weaknesses in order that God's power might be displayed. Again, our image, when God went back to the beginning and created us in, our Im- in his image and his likeness, we are weak and we are, are sinful, but in our weakness, he's made strong. In our weakness, he's glorified. To be fully vulnerable, C.S. Lewis says this, to be fully vulnerable is to know what love is. To be fully vulnerable is love, is how he says it. To be fully vulnerable is to be known. Sometimes we have this moment where we just, these things we're just holding on to, and we just want somebody to share that with, somebody to, 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 to feel that thing with. And God says to be fully human and to be fully loved is to be fully known. It's a reminder that we all need daily, that God is sufficient and that God is good. And I'm going to end here. I shared earlier that this is a message that God spoke to me before Pastor even even, uh, put this Genesis series together. And I think that the interesting thing about this that we see in this hiding is that we can all relate. We can all relate. That, that as a believer, that we can find ourselves in this place. You know, and what do we do when we find ourselves in that place? Because this is the temptation of Satan. This is the temptation of Satan, is that you find yourself in that place. Uh, I find myself in that place. And, and, and that voice, Satan's that serpent's voice starts to speak a little louder than that voice and starts to tempt you with these things. It's okay. Um, it'll be okay. And then we begin to just allow our, ourselves to hear that voice instead of the voice that really matters. And, and that's, that's the difficult part with this hiding thing. And that's the importance of the, the truth of the Word of God to be so ingrained in who you are. Because when we're not ingrained in this, we don't understand the truth. And Satan begins to, to, to poke and to, to begin to tell these lies. And if this is not in here, it's easy to believe those things. And that's a temptation. Just run from it. Just run from God. It's easier. Don't pray. Don't read. You're struggling. You're not worthy. God. That's the lie. You're not good enough. You failed over and over when God is just saying, where are you? Where are you? It's an interesting thing that he says, Adam, where are you? Because here's the thing, that word Adam there in the New King James, it's actually translated in another, uh, other versions to man. And that word actually can be translated to humanity. So in essence, God was saying, humanity, where are you? Come out of hiding. Come out of hiding. There's grace and there's mercy and there's freedom. There's freedom. David sung it earlier. 
There is freedom. I believe that God is going to do miracles today. I told you, this isn't just a sin issue. This is a loneliness issue. This is a, a fear issue. This is a... a, a I, I find myself sometimes fearing of, am I going to be a good enough father? Am I going to be a good enough husband? And then it keeps me from the actual thing that I have. It's there before me. And yet Satan tempts us with these lies. And today, like Adam said, or God said to Adam, where are you? I believe that's the call today to City Gate. Hey, City Gate, where are you? Where are you? God, just soften hearts today. Lord, just God, soften hearts today. God, soften my heart today. Soften our hearts today. God, your grace is sufficient. Your mercy is everlasting. So City Gate, I leave you with that. Where are you? I'm going to have Pastor come back up. What did we want to get across? Is Adam and Eve isn't the only people on planet Earth that has done something that God told them not to do. Carmine quoted it. The book of Romans says we've all done that. So we've all been the one that took the bite. Looked for something that we could have found in God and something else and found it to be empty. See, the Bible tells us in that scripture that all of us have fallen prey to the voice of the serpent as he sings his first course. But we are those people that were built with self-will to choose whether to listen to the second course. And that's the thing that is most important as our, our ministry team comes right now is I think it's dangerous when we start flirting with sin, but it's even more dangerous to hear the second verse. See, the first verse is, do it. God didn't know what He was talking about. He's trying to keep you from the fun. He's trying to keep you from this. He's trying to do this. He's trying to keep you from this knowledge. He's trying to do it and, and question His character. And the book of Romans says, we've all submitted to it. Every one of us have fallen prey to this sin. The second verse is this. After you've done it and the guilt has arisen, he's telling you, run away from him, run away from him, run away from him. You say, well, pastor, there was judgment. Yes, there was. But in the very place of judgment was redemption. It happened simultaneously. As he was judging, he was redeeming man. He was shedding blood, fixing to, as Carmine said, as a foreshadowing of the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ. And I think that it is more sinister because every one of us have fallen prey to the bite, but it is more sinister of the serpent to tell you, run away from the very God that can redeem you and bring you back. To run away from the very thing and the very God that can bring healing to your brokenness, can bring that, that loneliness, He could bring companionship, fellowship, where are you? Stand to your feet.